This is a, a beautiful and a stark and a heavy text, but it is deeply appropriate for Advent. It is, as it were, the color of Advent. It's haunting. It expresses longing and desperation and desertion, and yet with the hope of our deliverance in the determination of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. So upon Him this morning, we fling all of it, all of our hopes, all of our fears, all of our challenges, all of our brokenness. We put it on Christ, for He alone, He alone is sufficient for these things. Recently, this last year, April 2022, the New York Times ran an article. It's basically the fourth in a series of articles over the last couple years entitled, We Are Still in an Epidemic of Loneliness. An Epidemic of Loneliness. We are still in an epidemic of loneliness. And in this article, they just focus on the fact that especially aggravated by COVID, but predating COVID, we are just, we're alone from people in a way societally that we've really never been. The article highlights men in particular. You know what I mean, guys? How many friends do you have? Like real friends. I don't mean the weather and sports kind of friends. Like deep, real, how are you doing, how are you really doing sort of friends. An epidemic of loneliness at large, especially for men, especially for white middle class men. But we don't have any of those here. And yet we all relate. We all relate to the pain of being alone. I think most of us in our lives at some point have felt the pain and the hurt of being deserted, of being desperate for help, of longing. Again, this is the color of the Advent season, which is why it's appropriate to not just jump into some random series during Advent, but to stay in Mark, to stay with Jesus in Mark, in Passion Week, and let our, the cries of our heart for sin to be finally and forever put to death. Far as the curse is found in your life, in your world, far as the tendrils of injustice have made themselves known in your life, we cry out, Jesus, help us. We want to stay with you in those things. And yet in the midst of an epidemic of loneliness and other forms of injustice that we see around us all day, every day, the effects of sin upon the world, it is good to know that Jesus is not aloof. Our text shows us that. Jesus is not standing back. He's not watching, waiting for you to mess up, not sure if he wants to, you know, give you a hug or a lightning bolt today. Jesus is not aloof to our sin and the suffering and trauma, and brokenness, and pain that comes along with it. Unlike the, the gods that we make up, superheroes writ large, whether it be the Babylonian gods, or the Assyrian gods, or you know, the Greco-Roman pantheon, Zeus, Jesus is not a voyeur on the suffering of the world. He does not engage in divine voyeurism, as it were, tickled, by this little game of Sim City that he set up on earth. At the same time, he is not an impersonal force that we need to fear. Nameless, impersonal forces of fate that swirl about, that, you know, karma just might get you if you're not careful. Jesus enters in. Advent means that he comes down in dirt, 
dirty hands, dirty feet, tears as a baby, grows up to become this man who enters in, who enters into our suffering, not partially, not standoffishly, not waiting to see if you might be worth it, but fully, and fully to sacrifice himself in perfect love that he might save. Mark 14, Gethsemane and the arrest, this is why he came. This is why he came. You are why he came. And we're going to see that in our text in at least four main ways. The desertion of Jesus, the desperation of Jesus, the determination of Jesus, and our deliverance in Jesus. Let me say that again. The desertion of Jesus, the desperation of Jesus, the determination of Jesus, and our deliverance in Jesus. So first, the desertion, the unthinkable desertion of Jesus. We are in this garden now. The Bible kind of revolves around divine and cosmic scenes that happen in gardens. We're in this garden, Gethsemane, and Jesus is abandoned. He is left alone and betrayed by his closest friends in the hour of his greatest need. Have you ever gotten one of those phone calls? And you know what I'm talking about if you have. One of those phone calls where somebody calls you on the phone and you can hear it in their voice. What? What happened? What happened? You can hear it in their shaky voice that perhaps they are about to relay to you that someone that you know and you love and they know and they love has died. Or perhaps it's the doctor's office on the other line calling to give you now that diagnosis. Have you ever had one of those kind of phone calls? You know what happens. You, your body starts to react physiologically. Adrenaline starts to, to pump. You, you start to tighten up your, your stomach, right? Your, your throat and your stomach drop down to the floor. There's a physical expression of pain. That's what this text is like. This text is the phone call. And in that way, and as John already prayed in the pastoral prayer, it is a shock to all of our religious assumptions and pretense. This would have been such a shock in the ancient world to Jew and Greek alike that God would come in flesh as the God-man, fully God and fully man, not part God, part man, not fully God, but putting on a man's suit, fully God and fully man in flesh to be, as it were, deserted by his closest friends, even to the point of death and death on a cross. Now, these are the friends of Jesus. Indeed, his closest three friends are taken with him, James, John, and Peter, and they cannot stay awake. And before we wag the finger too hard and too quickly, again, there's something happening here physiological. There is a, an acute trauma response that they're facing. We've already come out of the upper, upper room, John 14. Jesus has already attempted to calm them down. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. But, but they're having a tough time. So they are, as it were, emotionally and psychologically at the brink of exhaustion. And yet we are meant to wonder, one hour? You can't stay awake for one hour? You can't just stay awake with Jesus for one hour to pray? No, <laughs> they can't. And yet these are the same folks that remember our, our, our previous text. In verse 31 of Mark 14, uh, Peter says, I will die for you, Jesus. 
Like, come what may. You're my man. I'm your right-hand man. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll die for you. And in verse 31 of Mark 14, we're told that all of the disciples said the same thing. Now, this alone, if it were friends like our friends, would be sufficient, sufficiently scandalous. But, but the scandal's actually bigger. And the reason why, and this is so important, is we need to understand, we should understand as followers of Jesus, what it meant to be a disciple in those days. Right? We're so individualistic that you're like, all right, let me see. Who do I want to follow? Who, where, where do I think the stock's going to go up here? Right? Like, okay, I'll choose you based on the condition of, you know, it's going well, and if it starts to no-go well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to this other team over here. The nature of discipleship in the ancient Near East, and especially among a Jewish religion during the Second Temple period, was total and complete life submission. When you became a disciple of a rabbi, you put your life in their hands. You said, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever the shepherd goes, the sheep will follow. It wasn't a decision based on, you know, potential earning income in a vocation. It was a calling that was placed upon you. You were anointed and brought into it. To put it in our vernacular, it was a big deal. There was a saying among the old rabbis that the disciples of a rabbi should go about as they walked on the roads covered in dust meaning that you were so close to the feet of your rabbi, always, that you would literally be covered in the dust that came off the back of his sandals. So these are more than friends. They're sworn followers. Perhaps that's why Peter, again in verse 29, is so utterly confident. All of these disciples may forsake you, but not me. Aren't you just glad Peter's in the Bible? What a tool, right? I mean, what a schmo. I, I just love it. I love that the Bible isn't, you know, just one whole book of Proverbs. You know, Confucius says, do these 10 things for your best life today and to improve your marriage and make more money. No, you get Peter. You get Peter because in your own homes, you own a mirror. And because you own a mirror in your home that you look into from time to time, you need Peter as much as I do. Everybody will leave you, Lord, but not me. His hubris completely exposed. Pride comes before a fall. And here, Peter and the other disciples in this garden, now think about gardens and think about naked people in gardens, not too hard, but biblically. Here, Peter is naked. He is exposed. I will do it. I am righteous. I will follow you. I can handle this. And yet they all run. So while we are prone as a defense mechanism to our own religiosity, to hobby horse Judas in these texts, realize they are all Judas now. They're all Judas now. We are all in this story exhausted, confused, hurting, leaving Jesus deserted and alone. Judas now. Now this uh, this scene unfolds in three cycles as we heard Jesus comes back three times to ask them to pray. Pray with me. Will you just pray with me? Will you help me? Will you hold up my arms like Aaron and Hur did for Moses? Will you defend me? And three times they fall asleep, which is why he says in verse 38, I know your spirit is willing. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about their souls. 
I know your spirit's willing. I know you guys want to love me. You're human, all too human, and frail in your abilities. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And what do we see in the disciples? Not only is their flesh weak, but their flesh wins. Their flesh wins. And so in this unthinkable episode, we should indeed be convicted. Mark, again, wants us to ask these questions. Where do we sleep on Jesus? Where in our lives is the Lord asking us, hey, see this, be with me, know me, let me know you. Let's go to the Father together, let's pray. And yet how convenient we find it, you know, as if our house were a mansion, to just have that one room that Jesus can't go into. Jesus, you can go into all the rooms, but that room is mine. My kids, my grandkids, my money, my future, sexuality, whatever. Where do we sleep? Where do we find those threefold ironies in our life? You're such a good Christian, and yet there's obviously a few things that you continue to struggle with. And so often we're like Peter in those struggles. I got that. I will never leave you. I'll die for you. We should be convicted, but we should also be comforted. Friends, family, brothers, sisters, Advent, Christ Church Santa Fe, randoms, hooligans, Santa Feans. This is for us. This is for the comfort that we have from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, to us, through the Word. He came for these ones. Remember, Jesus came for these ones. He, he saw their frailty and their failure, the weakness of their flesh. He didn't discard them. Jesus came for such as these, which means he came for such as us. The desertion of Jesus and the desperation of Jesus coinciding. He came for these ones and he came at great cost. The desperation of Jesus is seen as the weight of the cross looms heavy upon him as the Passion Week progresses. We are in this story in the evening. The days for the Jews began in the evening, so this is effectively Friday night after the Thursday Passover meal. Passion Week had begun about a week prior with Jesus on Friday before arriving at Bethany, he spends the Sabbath Saturday with his disciples. On Sunday, the triumphal entry, they're crowning him king. And then as we have heard, but it's good to remember that on Monday through Tuesday, he's in the temple. He's cleansing the temple. He's having arguments and theological debates in the temple. He is showing these folks, I am the new and true temple. I am the one. Everything in the Old Testament, every sacrifice and every symbol and every sign was a placeholder to the God-man. The only one who could ever say is the great high priest, it is truly finished. So we're on Friday. Jesus is tired. He knows what's coming. And perhaps that's why we, we get an insight into his distress. It's, it's, it's hard to even go deep enough into the, the meaning of these words that we might feel them this morning. But distress, deep sorrow, sorrow to the point of death. I mean, take that how you want to take it. You know, look, kill me now, Lord. I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. I trust you. Your will be done. But could you please take this cup from me? Physical pain, emotional pain, and especially spiritual pain. Right? We think of the pain of Jesus. It's not just physical and emotional. He knows he will bear the wrath 
of all the sins that you've ever done and all the sins ever committed against you. He will take all of that upon himself to the point of death, suicidal ideation, possibly. Psalm 43 is called to mind. Many scholars have pointed this out. This was our call to worship. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Jesus is a real guy going through real things in the midst of real pain. And these Greek words are only used in Mark. They are more than Jesus being sad or hurt or lonely or angry. He literally feels like he's about to die. Now, the location of this scene gives us some clues. Gethsemane, right? It's, it's in the Mount of Olives. It's right across the valley there from the great entrance to the temple gates and the temple mount. Jesus is most likely in an olive garden with his disciples. Gethsemane means oil press. Oil press. And the symbolism should not be lost on us here that through this physical and spiritual pressing, Jesus, the true olive branch that comes out of the stump of Jesse, will indeed bear fruit and he will be crushed down, that we, undeserving, may be anointed by the very oil of God. Yet for now, he is in the old garden and sin lurks. He's tempted to doubt. Pretty much every commentator points this out. And again, we're so quick to go, well, Jesus knew, he knew he was going to keep God's will. You know, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Yes, yes. And yet the heaviness of doubt is upon him, truly upon him. He is face to face now with threefold enemies. His friends have deserted him. His foes are coming to arrest him. And he himself is deeply feeling these things in his own Soul. And so we're told, surprisingly, that he falls down. He falls down to pray. This is surprising, especially for this reason. Jews, especially dignified rabbis, for goodness sake, dignified, put together, you know, big old robes, funny hats, secret handshakes, all that stuff. They prayed with their heads lifted up. If you go to the Wailing Wall today, you'll see Jews praying. They pray with their heads lifted up moving back and forth to keep concentration. They lift up their hands, holy hands lifted up to God. They don't fall down, and yet Jesus can't stand. He's filled with terror, dread, demonic attack. Again, an allusion to the Old Testament, Zechariah 13. If you strike down the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. And so he prays. He prays with honesty and brevity. Pain refines our prayers, doesn't it? When you're really in pain, your prayers are refined. Honesty, brevity. What does he say? Take this cup. Okay, we can do a whole sermon on the cup. Maybe not today. But so much to say about the cup. The cup in the Old Testament primarily is a symbol of God storing up his just anger and just wrath for injustice in the world, the effects of sin in the world. The cup is God's wrath for sin. It is the consequences of humankind in general and God's people in particular breaking his covenant with them. 
He said, do this and you will live. And time and time again, they said, we're going to do what we want. We're going to try to be our own gods, make our own way. So Jesus says, could you please take this cup, the cup of your wrath, the cup of the consequences of sin, which again, I know it's 2022. There are some churches that that took the word wrath out of their hymns. I want to put the word wrath into like every song. So we remember that this is what the Bible talks about. You want a just God, right? When When you look out at Santa Fe and your neighbors and your own heart and you see those broken places, you want a God of justice, You want a God who can actually do something about it, a God who cares. Again, not just this abstract, aloof, impersonal force looking down going, oh, that's a bummer. So Jesus prays, take the cup. His prayer is humble and it's earnest and it's Jesus praying. Do you think you're a better prayer than Jesus? I do. Because this isn't even a very good prayer. No, I'm kidding. It's an amazing prayer. It's the best prayer. It's Jesus praying. And could we imagine anyone, the sinless God-man, praying with more humility, more desire, more unction? And the answer is no. The answer that Jesus Christ, God the Son, gets from God the Father at the question of the cup, the cup of wrath that we deserve to drink down to the dregs, is no. And yet, he doesn't quit on you on the plan of God, on God's glorious and costly grace, the costly plan of redemption. He doesn't quit. He doesn't sleep. He trusts God. And it's here, I think, that we see something beautiful about Jesus' determination. The Son's reliant resolve is the heart of our redemption. Not your reliance, not your resolve. We've already heard it, sung it, prayed it, and we're about to come up here and eat it. The Bible says, eat this scroll consume the truth of the word of God and the promises of God. It's right here. It's not our reliance and resolve, but the reliance and resolve of the son that is the heart of our redemption. Not just in his work, but in his faith. Jesus' perfect and painful faith and belief is ours when our faith is frail and like the disciples, so full of failure. He cries out to his Abba. It's Aramaic, For father, familial and intimate, it's not just used by children, it probably doesn't translate well to daddy, but it it has a sense of, you know, even a grown man would say to his father, you know, my papa or something like that. Intimate familial language. Jesus knows who he is and he knows why he is. He cries out to a father who in a garden doesn't run doesn't hide, doesn't cover with fig leaves, but protects, provides, and pursues. Jesus is clear about his desires, remove the cup, but he's even more clear about his trust. And so he submits to the loving will of his father. His friends leave, Jesus falls, the war party comes, but he remains faithful. And one scholar pointed this out, I thought it was brilliant. What is part of the faithfulness of Jesus here? There's a lot of different angles you could take. I think this one is really beautiful. Why? Well, it's for the glory of God, but it's also for the joy set before him. And what do we mean when we talk about the joy set before Jesus? We get a picture of that in Revelation 19. One day, Jesus, the great bridegroom, will stand, and he will receive his bride washed 
white in the water of the word, washed with all the promises kept by Jesus himself, and she will come into the heavenly throne room, and he will receive her whole, pure, forever. And that's part of what's in play here. The reason for that is because Jesus, at this point in the garden, in some sense, is still covered, covered with that perfume that he was anointed with by the woman just a handful of verses earlier. And many scholars note that if you are doused with the strong smell of perfume, nard in this case, it doesn't just fade away very quickly. It could stay on you for a couple days. Now, it was used for anointing at burial, but it was also used for a wedding. It was also used for a wedding. And so as Jesus is in the garden, as he is suffering, as he is crying, as we're told, tears and sweating blood, the smell of his bride is on him. I just think this is incredible. Yes, Jesus trusts the Father. Yes, he knows what he must do. It is for the glory of God, of course, but it is also for his bride, his beloved. It's for a people. It's for his people. It's for us that he endures. The determination of Jesus is to honor and glorify his Father without doubt. But as he smells the heavy smell of this perfume nard upon him, he knows that his bride, his people, you all are worth fighting for. And so finally, we see our deliverance here. Jesus is forsaken in the garden so that our naked and ashamed souls can be graciously covered by his righteousness and love. What a weird ending. I love, you know, everybody has a life verse. This is my life verse, my new life verse. I may need to get this, you know, tattooed or something somewhere that y'all can't see it. 51 and 52, and a young man followed him with a linen cloth about his body. He seized him, and the dude ran away naked, as some of you say. And you're from the country, you know, to the east of us. Naked, they say. What a weird ending. I mean, Mark, are you flexing? Are you trolling? What's going on here? Who is this guy? Some scholars think it was John Mark himself. Probably a guy in Jerusalem with money, because these linen tunics were expensive, who lived nearby, he's up in the middle of the night, didn't have time to put his clothes on, just throws on the linen covering. But we don't know that. <laughs> Some think it might be an allusion to the prophecy in the Old Testament in Amos, where we're told that uh, the, the followers of Yahweh would run away in their nakedness. Some relate it to the example of Joseph with Potiphar's wife, right? Where she tried to, she tried to hook up with him and he knew it was wrong, he didn't want to get killed, so he ran away and she kept his cloak, but yet this story is only in Mark's gospel. What a weird ending. But many scholars have pointed out that above all, this is a picture of the old garden in Genesis 1 and 2. A stark garden picture. Clothing removed. The young man stands naked and ashamed. And we are be, to be reminded by this nameless man of our names in this story that all the sons of the first Adam can only stand before God naked and ashamed. In our sin, in our fear, all we know to do without God's help is what the first Adam did. Run, hide, and cover. And then there's the sword guy. We're told in another gospel that it's Peter, and he cuts off the ear of a guy named Malchus. The sword guy is weird too, but realize this, the naked guy and the sword guy are just two sides of one coin. 
And I don't really want to have a coin with a naked guy and a sword guy on it, but there are two sides of one coin because the sword guy, he's not sleeping and afraid, but using violence. These are the two trajectory sins of the first Adam. Passivity on one hand, violence on the other. So we're to see the 12 disciples who have already been alluded to as the 12 tribes of Israel. They are us. They have promised allegiance. They have promised Jesus with their mouths, with their words that matter, that they will be faithful to the covenant of God, and yet they are totally unfaithful. So we are left at the end of this text with the great question of the whole Bible, the whole gospel, and especially as we climactically move to the cross and the resurrection, Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? Because if I wasn't sleeping on Jesus, I'd probably be trying to arrest him. And if I wasn't doing either of those things, I'd be running away naked or I'd be taking out my sword to solve a problem that's not really the problem at all. Who can help? Who can save? And so we are brought in this text, finally, to behold the God-man. Hear these words from Romans 8. comes after Romans 7. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by human flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be an offering. And therefore God condemned sin in human flesh, in the flesh of Christ, the God-man, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but now according to the Spirit. Behold the God-man. In this garden now, Gethsemane, Jesus gets God's no so that we forever have his yes. Jesus gets God's no so that we forever have his yes, not in that garden, but in a new garden, the new heavens and the new earth. The faithful one receives desertion and desperation so that in our unfaithfulness, we might receive his embrace. Jesus, the Christ, the God-man, takes the cup of God's just wrath, meets all the covenant conditions for God's righteousness, so that that cup for us is not death, but now living water, as we are hidden with Christ in God. His flesh is cut off. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? The flesh of Christ, as it were, is metaphorically circumcised and cut off on the cross where he is naked and he is ashamed so that we get get Abba's care and custody and adoption into a new family and a new name. Family, this is why he came. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have come through Jesus Christ, your Son, by your Holy Spirit for us, and you continue to do so, we bring all of our Advent longings. We know desperation. We know despair. Many in this room that I know about, myself even, Lord, we've been in low moments, times of feeling cut off, and yet Jesus, lift up our heads because you fell to the ground. Our head can be lifted to the cross, to this cross behind me to remember that you have paid the debt in full. You stand in our place. You took the cup of God's wrath 
as a substitute for us. A propitiation, as it were, a wrath-bearing object of the justice of God so that wrath does not fall upon us. What falls upon us? Blessing, embrace, Father as Abba. We get it all because of you, Jesus. So we come now to feast on those promises. Thank you that you walked the path of desertion and desperation with determination that we might have a full and forever deliverance in you. And would you nourish and feed us upon that truth every week? Because every week we have stuff in our lives. Every week we fail. Every week we read the news. Every week there are joys, many joys, great joys, but also sorrows, light and shadow. Every week we need to come to this table, be brought out of the world, remade, restoried here, reshaped, have our story written into your promises at this table, and that is why we come to dine. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.